Welcome to the Blooming League of Original Podcast. G'day listeners, Aaron here. Before we get into this week's new episode, I just wanted to address a situation that has sadly affected the Thrush and Treasure family. For our long-term listeners, you may recall a past guest, an Australian metal vocalist named Ryan Towsell, who was also a personal friend of mine for the past seven and a half years. We unfortunately lost Ryan in January... And I'll be honest, I'm absolutely devastated by it. I believed in Ryan and his talent. He was such a great guy. He was sweet. He was charming. He was good looking. And he was super talented. And I believed in him so much that I'd only reached out to him in December about using one of his songs, hopefully, for a podcast that we're developing and producing for somebody at the moment. So I want you at home to please... Look up Volumes in Silence, and also Brave Today, which was his metal band, but Volumes in Silence was Ryan's solo music, where he's released a number of songs that I think a lot of people will connect to. And lastly, I just want to say to Ryan's family and his partner and his friends, I am so incredibly sorry for your loss. And wherever you are, Ryan, please say hello to Susie and Karen for me and give them a big hug and a kiss and a good dance on the dance floor and we dedicate this episode to you. Rest in peace brother. Anyways I'm flying solo for this week's episode so we won't worry about a theme song and we're just going to jump straight into the guess what. And speaking of guess what, guess what, what? We've got another legendary Broadway diva in the barbershop tonight and boy oh boy is he one hell of a man oh man. Especially given this mandolin player also (laughs) manages to double in guitar, bass, piano, clarinet, and after finding a violin in his attic, he found himself possessed to follow a career in the arts which has seen him exercising his skills on stage where he turned heads in The Exorcist before turning two heads in Sideshow, as well as a spirited (laughs) 70 or so other shows which saw him simmer and sweat a lot in November when this sizzling star spent a 12th night on Sunday in the park with Sundheim, where he skipped round and round the garden of Claiborne Park, forming a Caucasian chalk circle around Tour and Dot in a rumble for the ring. And now we ring in this rosy career by coming to the cabaret with a pocket full of fossy poses where Jesus Christ, our superstar, was born again. So I pray I'm not making much ado about nothing twice, even if I sound a little shock-headed, Peter, because even with all <laughs> these names we give him, he will never be just a face in the crowd, never the outsider, always arresting like in Electra. So let's zap to high voltage and parade through town with all the ragtime fanfare and trumpery of the theatre circuit while we transmit a huge Aussie g'day and a buzzworthy, oh, and by the way, meet Vera Stark, as we veer off for a tale of two cities, Brooklyn and, and, oh wait, there's only one, as we veer off for tales of the city that never sleeps, unless it's with, oh, greedy, three sisters, mothers and sons. Rock and roll! Yet before this, dear, even handsome acting alchemist can tempest to give a thundering clap, we're rushing out the door and storming into Anastasia's heart with just one loo, loo, sorry, look of love that could happily kill a mockingbird whilst exposing a secret life of bees. But before I get triggered by another birds and bees disaster, please help me welcome to the torture chamber this precise performance who proceeded to procure a proclivity of procedurals with a plethora of prosecutions performed in life on Mars, NCIS, Elementary, Blacklist, and The Unusuals, plus developed trauma after appearing as Walt recurring alongside all my children. And speaking of evil, Sir Guy will feel right at home at the zoo with Philippa Sue and Audrey Tattoo to do today's choosing cutesicle. But let's drop the E and sharpen the sickle because this barber floor sweep Tony nominees razor sharp vocals drenched the air with his miracle licks so and that's what does the trick, sir. It is unique because I'm uniquely gagging to be joined by the magnificently magical man of mystery, the miraculous Mr. Manuel Fastiano. <laughs> Yay, welcome to the torture chamber. How are you going? Goodness gracious, wait. It's frozen up. <laughs> wow, that is the greatest introduction I have ever received and I think I will ever going. Yep, awesome. And if you do, then let me know and I will sue them because how dare they? Goodness gracious <laughs> me. What a career. I am flabbergasted and it's, it's such an honor. It really is such an honor to have you on the show. I had forgotten about some of those shows, some of those credits. I was like, oh, right. I did that. Yep. And that's what we want. We want your career to fly past your face or before your ears, really. 
and you'd be like, well, hang on, I did that thing and and be hit with with dumb jokes, really, just dumb jokes and puns and alliteration, which I don't make it easy for myself at 3 a.m., people. Well, I'm a dad, so, <laughs> you know, puns and dumb humor are where I live and my nine-year-old appreciates it, so. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, I'll just compose myself after that one because those introductions kill me. Well, I, I appreciate the effort because it is well worth it. I'm not going to invite you guys on to listen to metal and not make it worth it. But all musicals depends on, on what your, um, your tastes are. So <laughs> yeah, well, I think that, you know, metal and musicals can sometimes feel like a chore and can sometimes feel absolutely awesome. Speaking of a chore, uh, you've been teaching apparently. Yeah. I'm going to get in trouble for this one. I know it. What's more nerve-wracking, teaching teenagers or performing with neo-Nazi dickheads outside the theatre? Uh, probably teaching teenagers. Yeah. I haven't really, I've only done a couple of like high school masterclass things, but mostly it's been graduate students in, you know, drama students and stuff. But uh, yeah, the neo-Nazi dickheads outside the theatre didn't make me nervous as much as just enraged. And so far, the high school students have not really made me feel enraged more delighted. Mm-hmm. Now, for the listeners, at, for the listeners at home, I can't even talk properly this morning. The listeners at home, we're talking about Parade, the revival. Uh, Jason Robert Brown's quite important musical. It's very beloved. Um, we haven't covered it on this show yet, but when it was on Broadway recently, it was protested. We did talk about it on this show. Now it's actually been announced to tour. I, I don't think we've ever had a proper nationwide tour of any Jason Robert Brown musical, let alone Parade. So. Well, I mean, I think this is his masterpiece, so you are in for a treat because uh, it's a gorgeous score and it was a gorgeous production and I was just incredibly honored to be a part of it. And when the neo-Nazis showed up outside literally my dressing room at our first preview, I was even more convinced I'd made the right decision to join this company because when neo-Nazis are protesting you, there is no better evidence that you're doing the right thing. That's it. And not only that, they're protesting a show which is about misinformation and they're protesting with misinformation of their own. Yeah. Like how much more of dickheaded do you really need to get? Yeah. Honestly, we've put up words like irony and stuff like that on it. But it's just it's like this, I talk about being dumb and stupid on this show, but as a joking way. That is actually dumb. The interesting thing for me was the character that I played in the show was, in fact, like the ideological ancestor of those neo-Nazis. You know, my character was the anti-Semitic rabble-rousing newspaper publisher. And we literally could have taken their homemade banner that they had out on the street, which was literally a sheet on which they had spray painted and taken it and put it into our show in Act Two. Like there's a scene, a song that I sing called Where Will We Stand When the Flood Comes, where literally we could have used their prop as our prop. So it was a way in which like the past and the present and, you know, the art and the politics really collided in a a striking way. Goodness gracious me. Well, anyways, we'll move on now because that's obviously a very... Uh, very heavy topic, all of that. Uh, and yeah. So we're going to get into some yeah. fun stuff now. If I, could, I th- tend to throw my notes around, I get... We're going to get into something that's heavier, but in a different way. That's it. I was going to say, speaking of stupid, we'll move on to the metal. But no, I'm <laughs> sorry, metal fans. You know, I love you out there. Uh, this week, I chose a musical that... Uh, not a musical. I chose a band that we had already covered, I think, in episode 101. No, 102. Or 103, uh, no, episode two or three. We're on episode 112 uh, now. I can't even count. I can't speak today. I'm so sorry, Mano. <laughs> I've had a month to prepare for this interview. That's all right. I'm so prepared. I got all my notes, got all my questions. I just can't deliver them. You just did like a, you know, a three minute freestyle verse version of my entire career. So you're off the hook. That's it. Thank you. No, I do. I do appreciate that. And I, I should let myself off the hook there. Uh, yes. Anyways, we will we'll move on to the medal. I picked Amaranthi because um, I thought they might be worth revisiting again. And I'll explain why in my review. I was I love this. I love that you introduced me to this band who I'd never heard of. And I was like listening while I worked out and I was <laughs> smiling and laughing part of the time. So can't wait to hear what you have to say on it. That's it. Okay, no, I have. I know what my my question is. I'm so sorry. 
Before we move on to the actual album, your rock star ride, Omano, what would be in your ultimate craziest rock star rider? We ask this question every week. I should know this. Goodness gracious me, I'm sorry. We have an hour to do this in. We've got 45 minutes now. Sorry. So your ultimate rock star rider, if you could pick anything you want to put in there, like crazy. I, I don't want mortar. All right. I want, for my ultimate rock star rider, I would probably demand steak tartare every show Yum. yes or is that is that too modest no no that's anytime anyone says anything about animals i'm like yes animals puppies kittens but then they're like steaks hamburgers and i'm like yes yum <laughs> oh that's that's what it was meant to go from parade and then i was going to go speaking of poorly placed pun segue we'll move on to the metal now <laughs> brilliant start today um Anyways. Yeah, speaking of speaking of heavy topics, we're going to heavy metal. So yes, oh very, uh, look, you've done my job for me. Goodness gracious me! Don't tell my producers. Uh, anyways, I believe you <laughs> grew up with some exposure to heavy metal. Yes, yes, my older brother and his friends were very into metal. So it was pretty much the eighties hair metal um, scene. So um, you know, Iron Maiden and White Snake, Van Halen and Def Leppard and all those bands also with, you know, just sort of hard rock in general journey and, um, you know, stuff from earlier then, cause I worked in a used record store. So a lot of Zeppelin and, and, and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, those metal front men were definitely among my first introductions to kind of super theatrical performance. Mm -hmm. And it very much is, which is the, I guess the genesis of this show that these two genres are not that dissimilar. So I guess we've proved our point by now, but. Oh, it made perfect sense to me when I found out you were doing this because I think it's almost like the Venn diagram between metal musicals and opera is like there's just a sweet spot there where uh, this kind of, you know, robust theatricality and the primacy of the vocals and uh, a willingness to kind of go to extremes, a super rabid fan base, a kind of dispensation with natural realism and reality sometimes, I think all of that they have in common and drama drama the drama of it all yes my favorite moment from the movie soap dish i don't know if you've seen that that's um whoopi goldberg no i think it's kevin klein sally fields i think it's about a soap opera but basically it's a farce and there's a moment where everything goes wrong on the set and the director in the control room says at last drama yeah <laughs> and i always think of that when uh, i hear some of these metal singers yeah that's it i just i need to look this up to see if Whoopi. yeah Whoopi's in it oh is she yeah i'm pretty certain it's been a long time yeah the poster's a bit small yeah Whoopi, elizabeth shoe robert downey jr kevin klein kathy moriarty terry hatcher gary marshall kathy najimi and carrie fisher i nearly said thatcher for some reason I'm just not with it today. I'm really not. Like, what a hell of a cast. I actually do remember this. I remember seeing the poster. I just never yeah. seen the movie. Highly recommended. Yeah, I, I definitely have to see it. Oh, this is stage adaptation. I am yeah. so surprised. Yeah, exactly. Um, anyways, now we will definitely move on to the metal album, which I picked Amaranthi. So I picked their album Helix. So I'll get through this review as quickly as I can without stumbling. God help us all. If memory serves me correct, we covered a different Amaranthi album in our first few episodes, but I think I may have blamed them for crashing my video game numerous times. This was unfair. And so, when looking for a good match for Amelie, I decided they both sound good together. But do they sound good on their own? The score, which should come last, began with some dramatic dialogue before breaking out in this Swedish outfit's typical all-in approach to theatrical metal. And as the 41-minute album progressed to track two, three, six, five, one can't <laughs> help but wonder if the all-in approach is needed at every turn. There are several moments where certain instruments are held back, creating a clearer sound and also more emotive moments. Not to say the all-in approach makes for bad tunes. It's about creating a journey. Anyways, at least track three started on my thankfully junkie-free bus ride. The bus slowed down at a stop and my body turned cold as my right earbud crackled out and died. Damn it. Well, if I can't blame them for killing my video game. Okay, fine. Pettiness aside, 
Dreams, Helix, Inferno and Countdown came off as clear hits with catchy licks, sing-alongable moments and flashes of a band willing to hold back on occasion, though not much. The sound is full, not awful. It wouldn't hurt to be less so at certain moments, but now I'm just repeating myself. Three and a half stars. I love the Avengers cover, which is why I picked this album, and there is a lot of goodness in it but it's just a bit too rich, not allowing the lyrics or the three people delivering them the chance to breathe and them to sink in. So I I sort of felt like they threw everything at it every minute and only occasionally slowed down a bit. (laughs) And I don't mean like a ballad slow down. I mean, just having a drum, having a rhythmic drum beat for a bit, that sort of thing. There was moments of that, but the rest of it just felt like all six members were going at it. And I don't think it needed that. So what did you think of this one? I mean, I, I was I was kind of taken with it. Yeah. For its um its kind of unabashed stylistic mashup. Yep. You have three vocalists and they're actually, you know, listed as like the female clean vocal, the male clean vocal, and the male rough vocal. Mm-hmm. And I think they've had to replace the rough vocalist like three times um, yeah. already. But that combined with synthesizers, combined with kind of more conventional death metal rhythm section, speed, there was just a lot in there. And I agree with you 100% that they definitely felt like every song had to quote give the audience their money's worth yeah and so there is a kind of listening to the whole album you know there is a kind of like static overall feeling I think because they do all uh, have a lot of everything but I will confess that I've been to musicals where I've felt a little bit the same way where every song had to turn into a big production number With, uh, you know, a giant dancing chorus and multiple key changes and uh, Mm -hmm. six endings. And the whole of New York on the stage. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Shame. Because people paid a lot of money to come to this show. So, you know. I I would say it. I I have to admit, I want to say that so badly just to see all of New York on the freaking stage, people. What the fuck? Oh, my God. Anyway, sorry. We're not going to get it here. So. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, But, you know, I did also like. I, I looked up, I was like, I wonder if this band is Swedish. And sure enough, they're Swedish because they are very melodic. And Sweden is this totally unique country in the world that produces more, you know, hit music per capita than any other country. And I actually was curious about this at one point. So I started reading about it and there's like several different ideas, but one of them is that they all like music is an incredibly part important part of the public education. When they're little, they start singing, you know, every day, multiple times in every class. You know, there's the song for like getting your notebook out and there's a song for going to recess and there's the song for the end of the day and there's the song for going home. And so that's just like ingrained as part of their culture. And then, of course, like the giant shadow of ABBA and, then, you know, in the 90s, like Ace of Bay. And then these Mm -hmm. like, you know, Max Martin, of course, incredible producer, songwriter. They just have a knack. I feel like melody is in the drinking water there somehow. And even a band like this that is ostensibly this, you know, thrashing metal band can't help but be really melodic. Yep. And and still pop. Yeah. Yeah. Still a pop in a way while still. Totally. Totally. But to be fair, you say the Swedish have a a song for, you know, pouring a glass of milk and for opening a notebook. That's me as an adult. So um, (laughs) are you listening? America and Australia and England and all the other freaking countries out there make music and performing arts part of the daily life and you're country will flourish sweden here, here. is tiny compared to the rest of us well compared to the the land mass i mean yeah and population wise probably yeah and and population wise but they've produced hit after hit after hit after hit competing against the world of of hollywood and even nashville and and stuff like that and 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 motown yeah you know these places in america and and england with like that and manchester they've got a vibrant music scene australia we've got acdc we've got kindly minogue in excess then you look at what a lot of the american artists are singing songs written by swedish people 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that another part of it is that because they sing in English and English is their, you know, I mean, I think by this point, everybody's kind of fluent there, but certainly in, in the earlier days was a second language. Yeah. They didn't care quite as much about the lyrics. And so the lyrics don't really, they didn't get in the way of a good tune. Yep. And I sometimes think native English speaking artists, whether Australian, British or or American or Irish or whatever, can get fussy about lyrics in a way that uh, if you're just here for like pure pop candy, nobody cares because pop music is about turning the brain off and turning the body on. Mm -hmm. And that's, of course, something that has started to happen a little bit in musical theater, but it gets tricky in musicals because in musicals, you can't turn the head off. The head and the heart both have to be engaged yeah. because ultimately, at least in old fashioned ideas of musical theater, lyrics need to drive a character's journey forward through a story. What you're talking about in terms of lyrics in, in English speaking countries, a lot of times I feel even in musical theater, especially these days, I hate to say it, kids, leave me alone, I'm old. Um, there's a, a pretension behind it. And sometimes I do just want to bop. I do just want to jam out to some silly song that it may be a love song or maybe a breakup song, which is most likely what it's going to be. But I don't have to think. I do love my song, uh, story songs and songs that will take me on a journey and allow me to think. But as much as I love The Mole, the TV series, I also love Drag Race. Sure. One gets me to think and one I can relax and chill out. Sure. One I happen to watch a little bit more than the other one because it's on literally every other day. I know. I think you're totally right. And I think that that's actually where where musical theater, where the kind of Venn diagram of musical theater and opera start to intersect because opera in its own way, like pop music, the librettos are like wafer thin. They're singing in a foreign language. Nobody really knows you know, what the, the the lyrics are kind of take a secondary place to the music. And in this case, like the quality of the singer's voice uh, and in stuff like Wagner, even the orchestra itself is kind of a character. But that happens in musicals as well, where, you know, at the end of act one of Wicked, like, yeah, we get it. She's defying gravity. But at that point, it's like no longer about the words. It's about like the virtuosic performance of the vocal and that in, in and of itself becomes the dramatic event, right? That's the thing that makes the hair stand up on your arms, not the story. But it's part of the story, you know what I mean? That's in 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 its best form. It's meant to be that liberating moment for her. That's what that show does so well is that you feel that moment with her. You don't always feel that moment, especially not when you're at the end of Act One and you need to go to the toilet or you need a drink or right. <laughs> whatever it is you want to do. You're eager to have that fifteen. 20 minute break yeah yeah and it's like and i'm sure they sold more merchandise at the intermission of wicked because of how spectacular that act one closer is than anything else because you know the curtain comes down and people say i need to go spend money on this show that just like made the hair stand up on the back of my neck it's also a place where the yeah. stagecraft of course elevates it literally in the same way that the music does yeah wicked is not on your resume no Neither is Mamma Mia, neither is any jukebox musical except one that was an original one for Broadway, Disaster. How the yes. fuck have you, pardon my language, have you managed to get through your career avoiding this stuff? Are you deliberately saying to your agent, tell them no straight away or what? What's your secret? That's what I want to know. What's the no, secret? no, I, uh, I. <laughs> That's that's a that's a really good question. Maybe I'm just not considered fun enough to be a part of those because they <laughs> they tend to be quite fun. And for whatever reason, I, you know, have somehow have like squirreled myself into a place of playing nerds or bad guys. Wicked is not fun. <laughs> they are not having fun doing Wicked. Let's face it. I've seen it. I think that Dr. Dillamond, you know, just a nice yeah. six month contract where, you know, that's a that's a I, my understanding is that's a really nice gig to have because he doesn't do much. Yeah. Yeah. I'd love to do Wicked. Love to do Wicked. You, you would. Do, oh, so it's not a deliberate choice. OK. Wow. No, no. 
no, I mean, uh, there's there's a lot of shows that I but I just am like, oh, maybe they don't think of me that way or uh, who knows. But I, I have been heartened to find that, you know, in the past five years or so, I've gotten to start to do a little more comedy, yeah. which has been really fun and very liberating. And it's very easy to get pigeonholed. And so the more you can, my agents are always saying, well, you just did one of those. You don't want to do another one of those. Oh, that's all you're going to do. And so uh, trying to keep it uh, keep it fresh and varied is uh, is important but no i would you know like um i would have loved to have been in and juliet you know like i think max martin is a genius i think max martin is a total genius are you listening producers <laughs> goodness me sorry betsy wolf and i did a show years ago and so we we shared a love of of Katy perry and of uh, max martin tunes and uh when she booked it i just said this is you are so lucky this is a dream come true she said i know she got a tony nomination everything i was very happy for her well paulo's not gonna stay with it forever surely they're gonna need a new lance exactly Goodness exactly i'm gonna throw my hat in the ring there that that show's not going anywhere anytime soon, I don't think. God, and he gets to sing Teenage Dream. Come on. Like, what's better than that? To be like, you know, my age and my gender and be able to sing You Make Me Feel Like a Teenage Dream. I was like, somebody wrote it as if on commission by me. In a cod piece, <laughs> Mano. In a cod piece. Yes. We've seen the photos. <laughs> um. Anyways, well, it looks like we can count down to an ad break in three, six, five. Coming soon to the Bloop Network from the producers of Thrash and Treasure, Around the World in 80 Plays, starring the adorable Lizzie B and Alfie Parker, and featuring the star of the show, Dolly the Dog, they'll take you for a trip around the UK, exploring the rich arts and cultural history of the UK and Northern Ireland. Episodes begin airing exclusively to the Bloop Network on November 14th, but here is a sneak peek. Welcome back to the second leg of Around the World Lazy Plays. I'm Alfie Parker and that's Lizzie B. And we're joined as always by our four-legged friend, Dolly the Dog. After a two-month break from brand new episodes, we've boarded the bus for Bradford on the eighth stop of the Sister Act UK and Ireland tour. Lots of Bradford love. Lots of Bradford loving. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now, moving on to the tour. This week we've been filming in the Alhambra, as I said, and I believe this is Lizzie's moment to shine, to give us an insight. Are you going to yawn all the way through it this week? Yeah, well, yeah, last episode I was yawning a lot. This week, I don't think I'll yawn. Are you going to interrupt me throughout? Oh, maybe. Maybe not, maybe. Let's see how it does. If anything really shocks me and I'm like, whoa, then maybe I'll, like, exclaim. Oh, I can't wait. Right, so, as Alfie said, we are at the Bradford Alhambra Theatre, and I personally, this is one of the nicest theatres in the UK, which always makes it worth going to Bradford. I'm having a lovely time. Yeah, yeah, that's nice. But I've had quite a cold experience there before because I've always stayed in hotels, like just bog-standard hotels. As you said, walked 30 seconds to work, walked home. So I haven't gone out or done anything like that. But this time I'm having a totally different experience. But talking of the theatre, basically my point was the theatre is so nice. So here's my information taken from good old wikipedia here we go the theater was built in 1913 oh and it was built by the architects chadwick and watson of leeds not to be mistaken with sherlock holmes and watson holmes sherlock holmes this is gonna lead on to another thing which alfie always takes a <laughs> mick out of me for because everyone says sherlock holmes but it's got an l in it so i think it sh- should be sherlock holmes no, you think it should be Sherlock Holmes. That's not what I say. That is what you say. I say Holmes. No, you say Holmes. <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> Lizzie says Sherlock Holmes. I don't. I say Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> I hate you so much. Well, oh, dear. Yeah, well, there you are. Word in. I actually say it right. Uh, Lizzie's totally right, but it's a silent... 
See, it's a silent realm. So it's not Holmes, it's Holmes. It's a silent L, though, isn't it? No. It's not silent. Might be. Sherlock Holmes. Moving swiftly on. Uh, it was opened by theatre impresario Francis Laidler. And before you ask... <laughs> right, sorry, carry on. I actually don't even know why I bother. No, I'm Are you taking you. any of this in? Who was it opened by? Francis Laidler. Right, before you've asked, I haven't researched him any further, but if anyone would like to... <laughs> Yeah, who is he then? A theatre impresario. They said that about me. Theatre extraordinaire. Theatre extraordinaire. Shout out to Jeremy Second. <laughs> my yeah. my OG theatre extraordinaire. If anyone knows how you become a theatre extraordinaire, please let us know. I think, I think I'm on track. I think I could. Of course you are, dear. Right, more facts for you. The large domed turrets are iconic in the Bradford skyline. And they actually are. Yeah, they are. So, Better play. it's got 1,400 seats. Is that it? Oh, so. Sorry. No, it sucks because it feels so much bigger. <laughs> That's <laughs> what she said. <laughs> yeah, there we are. <laughs> it does seem a lot bigger. Do, do you get what I mean? Yeah, yeah you do. All right, 1,400 seats. Alhambra. Call me the Alhambra. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's a cool fact. It was the main location, like the set, on the film The Dresser, 1983. They remake that? Yeah. No, it was a play. It's been a play recently, but the film um, with, um, what's he called? Mooney. Alfred Mooney, is that his name? Daddy Warbuck. Oh, I don't know. Do a quick Google. Talk amongst yourselves. Frederick Mooney. Alf Alfred. Albert Mooney. Oh, Albert Mooney. That's him, isn't it? And we're back with Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron and I am joined by the magnificent Mano Feliciano. Uh, Feliciano, sorry, I just added an I in there. I was about to ask you, I am saying it correctly, aren't I? Right as I said it wrong. You self-corrected. I so appreciate that. Thank you. It's 3 a.m. Oh, it's nearly 4 a.m. It's going to be 4 a.m. by the time I finish, so... I, I, I'm excused, people. I'm allowed. I'm human. I am only human. It's all good. Anything other than manhole is fine. Goodness, do you get that? Do people really call you that? that? Somebody did say that once to me at a party. They asked me my name. I said, Manuel. And they said, what? Manhole? And I said, yes. Yes, that's what it is. Correct. My dear parents chose to call me Manhole. Well, no. <laughs> sometimes I wouldn't be surprised. People want their children to stand out these days. Yes. Well, I'm glad they didn't pick it. That's for sure. <laughs> that's it. Anyways, now I came across some information about you that you, as a four-year-old, I believe, found a violin in your attic. <laughs> Is this true? Yes. Um, so the house that my parents moved into when I was quite young, there was an old violin in a very cool blue violin case. And I would drag it around as a small child. And my composer father, of course, was thrilled by this and thought, my child, he <laughs> wants to be a violinist. And so, of course, off they sent me to violin lessons. Years later, I did tell them that it actually had nothing to do with the violin and everything to do with the really cool blue case and the latches okay. <laughs> on the blue case that I like to play with. But for better, for worse, off I went. Goodness gracious, mate. Now, I just have a few questions about this violin because I'm skeptical. Now, has the violin ever whispered or called your name in the middle of the night? <laughs> no. Okay. I don't think so. No. Okay. Have you ever heard it playing when no one else was around? No. <laughs> I feel like I'm giving the wrong answer. Well, no, no, please give us the truth. That's all I want to know is that it's not possessed. Has it ever moved positions? I feel like perhaps it has moved positions. There were definitely times during Sweeney Todd when I didn't know where my fiddle was on stage. <laughs> Had to go running around looking for it. Oh no! But it may have been because Patty, you know, moved it right. Now, do you get a cold feeling when holding it, or perhaps feel anger or vengeful? Please say no. Yes. <laughs> you do. Oh no! Now I'm starting to get goosebumps. Okay, we speak truthfully here. Yep. No. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I feel angry at having to play it. 
Do you? If I have to practice something very difficult. Oh, okay. Well, that, that, that makes sense. Well, have you ever suffered memory loss yeah. while playing it? And not while playing something difficult that you couldn't quite get? Uh, yet. Yeah? Yes. Yeah. 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 I have forgotten where I was and what I was supposed to do next. Uh-oh. Okay, well, the last one, this will be the calling, this will be the red flag. Have any strange men, priests, nuns, or occultists ever turned up unannounced at your door? Yes. Oh, no. Okay, the jury is definitely out on this violin on whether or not it's possessed. Anyways. So what you're saying is that it's possible that it's possessed. Possibly. We haven't eliminated the possibility. That's it. All right. It's it's hanging on the wall. So now I'm going to have to I'm going to have to regard it with uh, more care and suspicion than I previously had. Thank you for that. Thank you for the warning. That's all right. Surrounded in, in, in crosses. Surrounded in crosses. That's all you need to do. And, yeah, and, and garlic. garlic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's it. And a bit of a splash of holy water. Anyway, so thank you for going along. As I say, I was worried you would be offended by that, but I'm like, who the hell finds a violin in the attic and it's not possessed? No. Really. And also, you know, the violin was considered the devil's instrument for, you know, there was a piece called the devil's trill back in 17 something that was fiendishly difficult. And of course, the Stravinsky piece, uh, the soldier's tale l'histoire du soldat is about uh uh the, the devil comes and asks to be taught how to play the violin sort of oh, an early no. crossroads myth oh, no no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna yeah. sleep today yes oh i'm <laughs> well acquainted with the diabolical fiddle so well i can say why you've lived with one I mean, Devil Went Down to Georgia as a fiddle tune, right? <clears throat> yeah. Oh, there you go. Oh, goodness gracious me. Oh, anyways, we, we're going to uh, move on because we're actually uh, running way over time now. We've got 20 minutes left to get through. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sort of just skim through my review for Amelie. No, take your time. Um, are you sure? Because I don't want to keep you over over time. No, no, no. I want to hear what you what you think. So. Wait a minute. Okay, I'll, I'll be as quick as I can. Uh, Amelie is a curious little show in tone, texture, and history. Based on the 2001 French rom-com, which admittedly put me to sleep as an 18-year-old. Surprise, surprise. (laughs) Then it made its way to Broadway with a less than stellar response. And yet, since then, as with so many shows, it merrily rolled along to London, where the fabulous destiny of Amelie seems to have been fulfilled for audiences and critics alike. But me, I can only go by the Broadway album. I have to admit there was one important missing piece from the OBC recording and score. Quirk, the vibe I know from the film before it put me to sleep. It seems lost here at the detriment of its story, and given the characters and concepts, that should be felt through the music. Perhaps less balladry and more nuance might have helped me connect with this fabled show. It's all very sweet, as Amelie should be, so it fills that brief, and the singing is exquisite, but the songs aren't allowing much more beyond beauty and occasional flashes of comedy. Without much in the way of peaks and valleys, it's all pretty straight and narrow, which is a shame as this is neither the source material nor the avenue for this type of sound. We should be feeling curious, tantalized, surprised, blindsided, and fall in love. I feel the songs I heard suffered by focusing too much on the latter. So it's three stars for its potential, but it just needs a lot more quirk. Yeah. I could see how someone has taken it in London and they've turned it into a hit because they would have seen the potential in it that I see, which I think a lot of these shows that had short runs, there's good shows there. There's just not the alchemy. Sorry. Oh, sure. That's, that's why we have the Tony award for best revival, because sometimes these revivals are of shows that are almost like, a premiere again you know what i mean exactly sometimes they're revivals of hits but sometimes they're revivals of of shows that i mean parade was not a hit the first time it came out no i i mean i i appreciate what you're saying about amelie it's it's always hard you know when you are a part of a show for two reasons one you of course have an emotional attachment to the work and the creators and the process which can, you know, kind of color your view of it. You kind of can't help but be its defense attorney a little bit. But the other part of it is that, like, I've never seen the show, you know, so I don't 
actually know what it's like to sit through it, to experience it as a whole. I only kind of knew the parts that I was in and that maybe I got to, you know, watch during rehearsal or from the wings and stuff. You know, it was a glorious experience for me because of the people who were involved and just getting to, you know, sing with Pippa and 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 work with her is something I will always treasure and Sam Pinkleton and Pam and and, and the writers. I do think that Dan is an incredible musician and melodist and but does come out of the pop world and so maybe some of the where I think the musical requirements in the pop world and the language sometimes translate well to the theater and sometimes the theater needs more shape, more drama, more edge, more in this case, I think you, you, the word you used was quirk. Yeah, and so that that may be, you know, I'm not I'm not here to disparage, you know, any of their work, but that may be an instance in which that kind of melodic writing does, in fact, lend itself very well to the romantic aspects of the show, which is, I think, what you were yeah. pointing out, and maybe not so much to the kind of zany jaggedness that is yeah. elsewhere that was there yeah that was in the production i'd seen images of the london version of it um and it's toured around it's been massively successful yeah. like it's it's beloved with what they've done with it over there so i saw that in this american broadway production the quirk was there in the staging and in the performances mm -hmm. and you could tell that you guys mm -hmm. were having fun with it but I don't think that I think there was there was a slight disconnect in having it was like the uh, the metal album was so much at eleven in terms of rah, 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 <laughs> the whole way through. This felt like it was sort of breezing through a little bit lower that, but didn't quite go up any higher and it didn't go down any lower. Which I'm not saying again, it's not a bad show because as I say, the potential is there. And I always say on this show that is there a bad show or is there the alchemy of a situation? Did something maybe not connect? Was the timing? not right yeah and i would just say that you know i mean i you know m uh, musical theater is the hardest of the dramatic art forms yeah because you kind of need it all to work you can't get away with having a you know thin book or a thin and you need and even things like you know how a song is orchestrated or arranged can have an impact on you know what kind of edge or quirkiness or shape uh, that may have in the overall sort of soundscape of the show. So, um, you know, Dan's an amazing songwriter and the songs in the show, I mean, there are some extraordinarily beautiful songs in there. My This is one of my the favorite things that I've ever done, uh, according to my wife. There's a song in there called Halfway about Zeno's paradox where Nathan wrote these extraordinary lyrics about, you know, when you're halfway there, there's always halfway further to go. And I just remember my wife bursting into tears when she heard that. And and it 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 really uh when it works, it works on an incredibly deep level. I think it really pierces. So it's very heartening for me to see that it's continued to have this life and continue to be shaped and refined. You know, one of the challenges I always thought was like, what a curious property to adapt into a musical. Well, it is. Because yeah. I don't know if you remember from the movie, it, like she doesn't speak, right? She's uh, kind of a mute. I fell asleep. I, I, I was like 20 minutes in and I was gone. Yeah. Very curious, you know, um, choice. And that, of course, comes with its own challenges when, you know, yeah. the original has has this like very, you know, mischievous, you know, kind of um, benevolent clown of a lead character, but who affects other people around them without necessarily speaking. Uh, and of course, like it's hard to have, a, you're not going to cast Philip Sue as the lead in a musical and not have her sing, right? Yeah, well, that's it. I, I, mischievous. I didn't get that from any of her songs, and I should have, I think. Uh huh. Um, yeah. So, and and that's sort of yeah. as we we spoke out with Joe Di Pietro because we did one of his musicals, "I Love You, You're sure. Perfect Now Change." But as I said to him, we can we sort of have to take them as the selling point, which is the selling point is the album. And when you sit down to, it's like mm -hmm. Jesus Christ Superstar had hit songs before anyone even went to the theater to see it because they knew. Yeah, concept album. 
yeah, they bought tickets based on the, that songs. They knew they wanted to see that show. And a lot of shows that over time I've listened to and I've really, really, really wanted to see. Um, and, you know, I've gone to see it and I've either been disappointed or not, or some that I haven't wanted to see. And I've seen them and the album experience was different to the staging experience. But we still have to, mm-hmm. on this show, have to judge it in terms of that selling point. I, I sit down, I know the brief. The brief is we're translating this French film. That's the other thing is we're doing this for a brief Broadway audience, especially with, that relies on a lot of tourism. I can't imagine a lot of tourists are going to go see that French movie musical as opposed to seeing The Lion King or Chicago or Phantom, these long-running tourist traps. Not that Phantom's with us anymore, obviously. So I think it was an obscure choice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I would say like, you know, The Lion King was a property before it became a musical and a property that was you know, beloved by millions worldwide. But Chicago was not. No. Right. Chicago became a, a tourist attraction because it was just so successful. Stunt casting. Yeah. Well, that too. Yeah. Yeah. And Phantom actually too, you know. Phantom had the mums. Yes. That's what it is. The mums and the grandmas. Yes. No offense. I'm not being sexist out there. I have my own mum who was obsessed with Phantom of the Opera growing up. It was the only musical she knew for so many years. Well, the only one she loved really for I did read somewhere, I think, that the target demographic for Broadway was like women between the ages of 40 and 65 who live in the tri-state area suburbs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, that's yeah. it. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so um, there is actually a London pro shot of Amelie. So you are able to huh. watch it in, in their version and an album. Yeah, I mean that this was this was not my first, but this began a long uh, series of me playing the dad. Yep, <laughs> because musicals often are about young people coming of age, especially young women coming of age, and they always need a dad who just doesn't get it, and uh, that has been me. And the dad often, you know, like sings like one song um, that is often the one that, you know, they skip on the album, like How to Break in a Glove for Dear Evan Hansen. But I don't, that doesn't bother me because you need that character in the story in order for the young person to have this kind of, you know, emancipating experience. Yeah, or that guiding voice as well, whether a mom or Mm -hmm. dad or a a weird bird lady on the street or whatever it is that sort of, that guiding voice. Uh, But anyways, we're going to guide us to an ad break because it looks like Amelie, you're a Lee, we're all a Lee, so we're going to leave to an ad break. G'day listeners, Aaron here. While you're topping up your coffees, did you know that you can support our show and go on a fantastically scary adventure at the same time? Go to www.thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore to grab your copy of The Toniston Tales, a darkly funny Aussie trilogy about a young boy who rescues injured animals in his spare time and the roller coaster ride he's taken on by a literal fish out of water. Written by me, the village idiot of Thrash and Treasure, you'll come to love Toniston Turnbull and the dozens of wacky characters that he meets along the way. And here is a sneak peek. Landing with a thud that echoes throughout the whole cottage, Toniston instantly rips off the manky shoes gifted to him by Milford and tosses them into the corner behind a blue barrel. Without a second thought, the bully races down the hallway to the backmost room of the house and leaps behind his uncomfortable makeshift hay bed, then waits, and waits, and then waits some more, until finally, what seems like an eternity later, muffled growls start vibrating through the thin walls of Cubpaw's cottage. He tries to control his breathing, but his heart is racing way too fast. Toniston ducks down further. Nothing should be able to see him, but he can't be sure they won't smell him. The gruff growling grows louder. Toniston presses his ear against the cold, chipped, chalky wall. He thinks he can make out phrases like, Where is it? And, Give us the merge. Though not much else. It's all too mumbled, and he's shaking too much. But it doesn't matter anymore. The front door of the cottage slams open with a harder, louder, cracking thud than it ever had before. A dozen or so stomping footsteps enter. The cottage shakes uncontrollably as if it is as terrified as our friend the bully is. 
Toniston panics. He's trapped in a corner with a slew of sharks on his trail. He makes a sudden rash decision, ripping aside the thick animal hide curtain. Toniston leaps through the small oval-shaped window headfirst, landing on a crate filled with hay sitting outside it. Mustering every ounce of manliness, he has not to react verbally as he lands with a crunch on the sharp, pin-like hay. It pierces his skin in several places, but thankfully, in his panicked state, the bully becomes numb to the pain. Counting his blessings, but not his chickens, Toniston struggles out of the crate by throwing his legs over and levering himself up, causing the coral underneath his feet to snap. He loses balance and tumbles. To describe the pain of tumbling face first down a steep hill of hard, sharp, deadly shaped coral would require far too many swear words than this author would be allowed to publish. So let's just say it hurt a lot. With one last somersault, Toniston's legs fly first over the cliff's edge. Crunch. His left hand grabs hold of the outmost jagged knob of coral. The stocky body of the ten-year-old child sways rapidly back and forth like some sort of death-defying pendulum. He gasps for air, or from shock, not even Toniston can tell. All he knows is above him, a deadly coral cliff and deadlier sharks. Below him, larger, sharper coral under a sea of giant, sharp spikes of natural metal. His head throbbing and vision too blurred with bright red splotches to be able to see clearly for too long. His face is dripping with blood. It runs down his shirt front, tickling him in the process. But all he can do is swing there. It's moments like these that a boy really needs his mum. Unfortunately, while Toniston's life hangs in the balance, on earth his life was dishonestly being celebrated by all at Gumbaya Primary School after news of the bully's disappearance had spread like wildfire through the tiny town, then onto the music industry before eventually reaching the wider world. Rock music fans, specifically those of Muzzletop, had flocked to the outskirts of Melbourne, leaving wreaths, band posters, and hand-drawn tributes to honour the missing son of their favourite singer. Although none of them knew the boy, many had seen him standing on the side of the stage of the band's concerts alongside Tina. Also, at the time of his disappearance, hundreds of the world's entertainment media lined the streets outside the school and sadly, outside Tina's house. Wanting any word they could get their greasy hands on, the gossip came in thick and fast as snide, bored neighbours took it upon themselves to speculate and make up stories for their five minutes of fame. Inside the house, the phone ringing 10, 15 times a day from nosy TV stations, hounding the poor, terrified mother, there was no escape. And whilst Tina was never polite in her declination, still they persisted. Call me again and I'll punch you in the nose, she promised. The school's principal, Mr. Patterson, had himself realised how cold and nasty it would look if Toniston Turnbull's former victims didn't at least pretend to mourn his disappearance. And thus, with an added paranoia of becoming a suspect, Mr. Patterson set out to overcompensate with memorials and dedications to the boy who touched all our lives with his love of animals. Mr. Patterson felt satisfied his school's image was intact. The largest memorial from the school came in the form of a service in the gymnasium. With every student, teacher, news reporter, and local police in attendance, Mr. Patterson sought to show the world just how much Toniston had meant to the school. The service would have made the bully puke. From the awful school choir butchering his least favourite songs, to the obnoxious releasing of the white doves, Mr. Patterson may have been satisfied his memorial service paid tribute, but Toniston is far too cynical for that. And yet, whilst hundreds of people sat on the cold plastic seats in the Gumbaya Primary School Auditorium, not one person in attendance truly knew Toniston when he was around. But all alone, in her large house, the animals all shunned outside, Tina Turnbull sits with her umpteenth glass of wine, ignoring the umpteenth phone call from friends, fans and family, but most sad of all, wondering, for the umpteenth time, what she could have said to her only child to have brought the two of them closer together. A now broken photo of Trent Turnbull and an infant Toniston only hours after his birth 
sits at her feet under the table. Tina simply doesn't care about the million tiny shards of glass cutting up her feet. She just wants her son back. And as if joined at the soul, while dangling from the lavender-coloured dead coral cliff face, somewhere in his head voice, Tina's cries are heard by the boy. His face scrunches up, but then it relaxes. I can do this. Grab your copy of The Toniston Tales from thetonistontales.com forward slash bookstore today. Hooroo! We're back with Thrush and Treasure. I'm Aaron and I'm joined by Tony-nominated performer, a Broadway legend, Mano Falciano. And I got it right first time this time. <laughs> Anyways, just got a few questions. Try to get through as quickly as we can. Now, one question I've been asking recently is something everyone else can do perfectly well that you fail miserably at. Oh, boy. Or should I ask your wife that one? <laughs> <laughs> I would say whistle with your fingers, you know, mm. that kind of loud whistle. Yes. Not oh. everyone can do that, but a lot of people can do that. And yeah. I absolutely, I've been trying for many years and absolutely cannot do that and would love to because very useful skill. Yep. No, I can't do that one either. One musical that you think all schools should perform every 10 years or so? Sweeney Todd. Sweeney Todd. Yep. That question comes from. <laughs> Caroline Sheen, who was on last week's episode. Alrighty, now how many regional accents can you do? Uh, I mean, you know, are you talking about like, do foreign accents count as well? Uh, I don't know. I would say maybe four, five. Cannot do Aussie, so do not ask me. You can't, you can't do Aussie? Well, I've been trying to do New York. It's just the way everybody, when they, you know, they do English accents, they either are the Queen of England or like a 1920s cockney yeah yeah although i i love to do um actually produce a show for two people from the uk two west end performers uh-huh and so i sit here editing them saying their accents all the time like i can't bear it this is gonna <laughs> kill me for doing that anyways love you lizzie you are an absolute superstar congratulations on booking sister act on the west end although i already knew anyways we're gonna move on who has been your best scene partner so far and who do you feel you were at your best for patty yeah i think just because i she took such good care of me and i never wanted to let her down and she was always incredibly present and this is you know, this is going to this is not by implication disparaging any of my other scene partners. Um, but that was a point in my career when, um, you know, it was a big deal for me. And I just remember that no matter what I wanted to try, she always rolled with it. And she just gave me her complete laser like focus whenever um, we were on stage together and particularly during Not While I'm Around. And she also took really good care of me off stage during the whole Tony um, story. So she uh, yeah, she's uh, she's my hero. Oh, wonderful. And for the listeners at home, we're talking about Patty Lupone, just to clarify. <laughs> Sorry, who else would we be talking about, really, other than the Queen? I mean, Patty Murren is also super awesome. So just going to put that out there. She is, and a friend of the show. It's been on this podcast uh, 2021 now, I think. Oh, God. How long have I been doing this show for? Anyways, what was a time you frustrated a director or choreographer because you just couldn't get it? Oh, my God. Every every rehearsal every process. <laughs> i'll be asking this one more often now yeah yeah um i think that you know one of the things that has been that i've learned to understand as i spent more time in in the business is that uh sometimes you kind of go full circle in a rehearsal process so you begin in one place and you get a bunch of notes from the director and you start adjusting your performance and then by the time you you know, finish with all of those adjustments and notes, it feels like you're right back where you started from. And I've have in the past expressed frustration about that. And I did have a director and I can't honestly remember who it was now, but give me a really good piece of wisdom about that, which is that, yeah, you have come home in a sense to the place that you started from, but you are not the same in the performance, in the role for having gone through that exploration and journey. And it's very much kind of like the hero's journey, you know, in terms of like a, 
a story arc, like they leave and they come home. And when they come home, they're changed by what they experienced. And that has been a really good uh, metaphor for the rehearsal process. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, well, it, speaking of that, that's actually a good um, segue into my next question. In what ways, good and bad, have you seen audiences change and has that affected your performance or even your approach to roles along the way? I mean, this is probably something that has come up a lot, but the prevalence of phones um, Ooh, and yes. not Ooh. just in terms of them going off during the middle of the show, but people people's face being lit up in the audience because they decide to check their email. Um, and of course, the understanding that you probably be are being videotaped at some point somewhere surreptitiously being able to look out into a Broadway house and see that reflective back of an iPhone with a little Apple logo on it from somebody in the front of the mezzanine who thinks that they're being sneaky, yeah. but doesn't realize just how reflective the backs of those phones yeah. are. So that, that, that does, I will say that does affect just because you're aware of it and it's something now that's in your head and that you have to fight not to think about yeah. when you would really just rather be focused on the work we do not condone bootlegs or slide tutorials or filming recording photographing anything of any kind on this show because that's exactly right and you've got lights on the stage a lot of the times those lights are pointed towards the audience or at least angled that way which means those lights would be reflecting straight off there right into your faces that's all you need is little bloody bright dots all the time goodness gracious me I can, I can barely deal i've got three lamps on right now i can barely deal with that but i am also half blind uh anyways <laughs> your tobias in sweeney todd was a talking point given the slight twist at the end for the listeners at home i i didn't see it myself didn't see a slime tutorial either uh, being that it was all in his head i believe uh-huh uh-huh so the wizard of oz is that all in Dorothy's dreams? Ooh, great question. I think if you are watching The Wizard of Oz with Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon playing <laughs> alongside it, then it's definitely her dream. Yeah, okay. But at the start of it, Uncle Henry goes off to the barn and that's when the tornado hits. He's dead. He is dead at the end of that, uh, at the start of that. So... This is not a, a friendly dream sequence, children. See now, now, now you're just being a now you're just being a pedantic literalist, and yeah. you're getting all fussy with the little inconsistencies. <laughs> and you're, are, are, are you the are you the person who watches the movie and says, "No, that's a that's a continuity error. The bagel was in the on the right side in the earlier scene." <laughs> no, no, no. I can I can deal deal with that, and I can deal with over the top, right? I can deal with silliness, but then yeah. there'll be some things like if you've got an over uh, like a super powered character, fine, they can do what they want. I totally yeah. buy into that. But then when the person standing next to them is the same size as me, and they will shoot a bow and arrow five freaking miles into the sky and kill a dragon, I'm out. No, I do not buy that for one second. How the right. hell did that normal skinny bitch, pardon my language, I'll, I'll cut that out. I was talking about someone like me, obviously. How did someone like me kill a dragon in the sky? No way. That took me out of-, of I get it. Yeah. I get it. So I can, I can buy into the crazy. It's like if the rules of the world are established and people then stick to those rules, then stick you have it. believability. Yes. But if the rules of the world are violated willy-nilly, then you lose me. Yes, and that's what Hollywood does all the time, is they violate the rules purely to neatly tie up an episode, which I'm going to do now with this last question. When was the last time you jumped in a puddle for fun? Oh, wow. I think that was a couple years, a couple years ago when my daughter was younger and she was jumping in puddles and I was like, okay, I have to join my kid in the puddle jumping. And uh, it's a shame that I haven't done it since then because it was much more fun than I thought it was going to be. So highly recommend to you and all your listeners, go jump in a puddle. Are you listening, James Munro Eigelhart? Get outside and jump in a freaking puddle. 
don't worry about the bloody mud or the dirt. <laughs> Listen to his episode because I asked him that question, and at the end he was like, "Nope, I'm out. Nope, no puddles for me." And I'm like, "This is, <laughs> this is brilliant, brilliant." Because he's like talking about his wife teases him by throwing dirt on him and stuff like that. And I'm living for it. I'm like, "Yes, we get to put this out in the world." But, anyways, thank you so much. It has been such an honor. We, we, we're five minutes over, so <laughs> had a few issues. Oh no, it's been a it's been a real pleasure. Um I love what you do and uh I really appreciate you having me on. No, thank you so much. Anytime, anytime you want to come back and, and hopefully scheduling will work out because Spencer's at, at right now, he's at the new school doing exams. Jonathan is at Second City with rehearsals because they're starting in New York. And and Matt, it's 2 a.m. for him and I, I, I don't ask my co-host to get up at 2 a.m. I'll do all that. I'll I'll do the the late nights if i have to do it myself doesn't matter so or ask a co-host i didn't i didn't need any co-hosts i was i was good with just you that's it oh look i i couldn't even get through half a sentence half the time having to deal with a co-host to worry about them i probably would have lost my mind completely but anyways before i let you go where can people find you on the social media I am not on the social media right now, but if I do go back on, I'm on Instagram at Mano Felciano, and then otherwise just my website is manuelfelciano.com. Yeah. Oh, that makes me look so good that I managed to book guests who aren't on socials. Yeah. I have, um, post parade, I, I, I went on a little, uh, social media hiatus and I, I have not missed it. I have to be honest, yes. but I'm sure I'll, I'll, I'll come back. Yes, I please do. And and follow us at Thrash and Treasure. Anyways, a huge, huge thank you to Manuel Felciano for joining me for a wonderful conversation. I'm sorry about the violin stuff. As soon as I read that, I could not get it out of my head. That thing is possessed. Anyways, check below for all the details on social medias. You can find us at Thrash and Treasure or on Instagram at Thrash and Treasure Podcast or on Patreon at Blooming Theatricals. Plus, buy the Toniston Tales and read the Toniston Tales. Who knows, you might enjoy them. I wrote them, so you probably won't enjoy them then. Uh, anyways, I can't talk so mano for this episode taking so long to come out. It has been a bit of a roller coaster couple of months now that we are back in production. I could finally post the episode, but then obviously life. Anyways, so I think I'm just gonna round it up. Uh thank you for listening. You take care of each other, and we shall see you next time. Uru. All right, how we doing? It's lovely to meet you. All right. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. Like quicksand!